Episode 31, Tom Chapin. Here we go. This is a special episode for me. When I was five years old, I had a VHS of Tom live in concert that I was so obsessed with, I literally wore it out. I, I broke it from watching it too many times. My first concert was Tom Chapin at Toys R Us. I mean, the, the crazy thing about Tom's music is it's, ch it's children's music or it's kids' music, and I still listen to it today. Like, every now and then, I'll pull it up on Spotify and I'll listen to it, and I go, man, he's he's so good. He's, he's genius. The music is incredible. The songwriting is, is incredible. His music just brings me joy. It's brilliant. And but, but, but here's the thing. If you didn't grow up listening to Tom's music, like probably most of you listening, you're still going to get something out of this episode. First of all, Tom is the brother of legendary singer-songwriter Harry Shapin. And ha actually, Harry has a new documentary out called When in Doubt, Do Something. You can check it out online. It, it's an amazing film. And, and we talk all about Harry. There's some amazing stories about him. But also, this is, a, this is an episode about songwriting. This is about performance. This is about the history of folk music. We cover so much ground in, in this episode. And I think even if you didn't grow up listening to Tom, you're going to learn a couple things about music history and, and you're going to get some insight. And I think you're really going to like this. So here we go. Episode 31. Th this means a lot to me. I was This is probably the most nervous I've been for any podcast recording because Tom is someone I looked up to when I was five years old. And it's weird how you you still look up to these people even even when you're you know much older you still kind of idolize the people you did when you were really young it's a weird thing but here we go episode 31 Tom Shapin let's dive in well the, the first thing I want to say is I've been listening to your music since I was four years old five years old I picked up a guitar and I would watch your I had a VHS of yours and I would watch your hands and I would play guitar along wow. to your hands. And my guitar was missing strings. Eventually I got a real guitar and then my guitar teacher would put stickers on the guitar where my fingers were supposed to go. Ah. Tom Shapin songs. So I've been listening to cool. you oh, since cool. then. I now live in Nashville for better or worse. Now I work in the music industry thanks to Tom Shapin. I, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. And what are you doing these days? What, what, what are you doing in, in the music industry? So I work more on the business side actually, but I play guitar every single day. I've got my guitars over here and I still do recording sessions. And every now and then I pick up a guitar and I, and I pick out a Tom Shapin song. <laughs> I promise. Because it, you know, it, it's funny how your music reminds me of the excitement of why I wanted to go into music. And there's other bands that do that also. Like the Beatles do that for me and ACDC does that for me. And there's, you know, there's a lot of, but your music is an example of music wow. that I'll go back to to remind me why I wanted to play music in the first place. And, and it's, and it's so cool to me. <laughs> cool. You know, well, the, the whole idea, especially at, at, for the kids side, for the family music was to make it joyful, you know, and fun for grownups as well as kids. And, uh, cause, cause early on they wanted me, you know, I was doing make a wish and, and I, and people say, you should do a children's record. And my idea of a kid's record was, uh, was, you know, three little duckies or something, you know, it was Raffi or, uh, and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Pete Seeger, and stuff, which was all for like th two, three, four-year-olds. <clears throat> and then my kids were eight and six, and I said, suddenly realized, man, you know, there's no music for this age, really. Right. And, uh, and this age can understand, you know, uh, story and humor, and you know, it doesn't have to be had, doesn't have to be dumb, you know, or not by not dumb, or it's so simple. And the whole idea was to try to come up with some, some, some recordings that parents could play in the car with their kids and not go crazy, you know? And so it's lovely to hear when I, you know, somebody who, who grew up with it and that it stayed with them because, because we, uh, me and my collaborators uh, really enjoyed making these records and enjoyed writing and, and, and we're very tough on ourselves about what, what made it in, you know? So. Absolutely. And I'll, yeah. I'll tell you one last thing before we dive in is sometimes if my, I have two siblings, they're significant, my brother's 10 years older than me, my sister's older than me, and sometimes if we're in the car and we can't decide what to listen to, my parents will say, let's just put on the Tom Shapin album. And we'll still occasionally, <laughs> and we're like, you know, 20, 30 year olds listening to Tom Shapin and we, and we still love it. Wow. But, but I'm, really, I'm really curious, because I started doing a ton of research, and I, I, the, probably the most fun fact that I learned was that you were, you were in this movie, Blue Water, White Death, in the early 70s. Yep. And this, this like, this amazed me. They're shooting a movie on great white sharks and they go, man, 
you know, we need we need a folk singer on this ship. It didn't happen that way. Let's do this thing. I'm going to tell you the story. Go ahead. <laughs> How, how's it happen? How's it happen? Are we on now, or is this just? Or just oh, we're on. We're on. We, we, we've been on the whole time. Oh, great. Okay, good. So uh, my brother Harry uh, would uh, uh, was in and out of Cornell University, and every time he flunked out. He'd go and talk to my uncle Ricky. Ricky was the Ricky Leacock of Leacock Pennybaker, who did Monterey Pops, a fabulous, great, very well-known uh, documentary filmmakers in New York City. He was British, and he'd give Harry a job doing something, and Harry got better and better at it. And, and uh, uh, in fact, Harry later on made a film called Legendary Champions, which was nominated for Academy Award as the best documentary. That's, and just before he got back into music. so. I'm playing tennis with Harry and, and, and this guy, Jim Lipscomb, who was a great documentary filmmaker who's make yourself up in Tarrytown. And we're driving and we're coming from, we, I'm living in Brooklyn and we get on the, get on the train, uh, meet at Grand Central. We're going on the train and Jim starts telling Harry, I'm, I'm going to be doing this film on, on great white sharks. I'm going to Indian Ocean for six months and we're going to film the thing. No one's ever filmed the great white shark underwater. And, and, and he's telling us the whole thing. And Harry's going, well, I can't do that. I can't do it. And I'm going. I, I, you know, hey, I can, I can. I was just, I just graduated college. You know, well, I've been out of school for a year or two, and eventually it worked out that I, I, I was hired as sound man and assistant diver, although I never got in the water, and uh, so we get the, the uh, and I, I got to go on, on the, uh, as the sound man, and Jim, who was a fan of Harry's and mine, and and uh, great friend of Harry's, a great friend of mine. He decided, as a, as a documentary filmmaker does, he says, I brought my guitar along, you know, and he says, so he had me sing. He said, well, let's, here, sit up here, just sing, sing one of the songs, you know, sing us. And so I did a bunch of songs that he just, you know, on down times, which became the soundtrack to the movie. And right. had no, they had no idea who I was. Peter Gimbel and, and Stan Waterman and all the divers, uh, we became great friends, but, but at the, they had no idea I was a musician at all. And uh, but then they big you know but I would sing at night and uh, and uh, they uh, Ron and Valerie Taylor it was an amazing thing for me. Uh, we went to Indian Ocean uh, didn't find any great white sharks found million sharks but no great whites, and followed a whaling trip and I mean it's 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 actually on on DVD now you should see it it's an amazing film. It's the first time uh, Peter Gimbel invented the, the shark cages, which everybody uses now, but no one had used until then. They were invented for that movie? Yeah, yeah. Peter, Peter invented them. Uh, the idea, how, how can we get in the water with the sharks? And then he said, well, I wonder if there's a way we can get a, a floating cage to go up and down. And he worked out how to do it. So that was the first time it was used. And, and that uh, movie, oh, um, I'm sorry. That movie kind of inspired Jaws? Like that's kind of yeah. like, and that's like an important film, right? Well, St uh, Stan Waterman, who was one of the divers, uh, lived in Princeton, as did, I can't think of his name now, the guy who wrote Jaws, the bo book. So it absolutely inspired him because he, and he, he, because uh, you know, you talk about the great white shark, which is this, you know, the, the other than the, the orcas is, a, is the, the, the premier predator in the ocean, you know, and they grow to 15, 18 feet and thousands of pounds. I mean, it's an amazing, uh, amazing animal and really uh, related to Carcarian Carcarius, which is the the uh, the great great white shark back in dinosaur age. That's how old they are. Right. And so, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, anyway, whoever wrote uh, the uh, Jaws would come and have dinner with, with with Stan, and they'd talk about all this stuff. And and that, that kind of was like, oh, that'd be an interesting horror film trying to catch this shark. And then that became Jaws. And the footage, because I was watching little clips of it, the footage is actually amazing. It looks like it, it was done, it could have been done last year. Like it still looks really great. Well, it was an astonishing thing. It was cinema, uh, it was uh, a wide cinema. It was, uh, it was done in 35 millimeter. I, uh, uh, Jim had, a, had a, 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 a big camera with a blimp to hold the sound. And I, 55 pounds, I pick it up and put it on his shoulder. He's, he was six foot two, strong man, I'm six five. And I pick it up, put it on his shoulder. He said, "Give me f-stop, so and so, so and so." And then, and then we click it up. And then I plug into him, and I had a Nagra, and and I just carry it. And, and I came back like beefy, man. You know, I was a skinny guy, basketball player, and I and I uh, come back. I weighed, you know, gained about ten pounds of my arms are like this. It was an amazing event to watch this happen and be on be part of it. At the end, they never filmed the Great White Shark for the six months I was there, but they came home. They had this incredible film, and they said we need a we need an ending. We have to go back to 
and everybody said, well, we'll go to Australia. Ron and Valerie Taylor were Australians. And uh, they said, right on, on Dangerous Reef in Australia, that's where they are. So they got more money and they went back and they asked me to go. And I, and I said, no, nah, I, I, one of the things I learned on that trip was watching these guys who were all in their 50s, 40s and 50s, who had changed their, had made, just decided to follow their, their bliss, follow their dream. Uh, Peter Gimbel is, uh, was one of the Gimbel families, you know, the Gimbel, the, the, uh, the department store. Right. He and his twin brother were on Wall Street making zillions of dollars. And he was in his late 30s, I think, and his brother died of a heart attack. And he said, and Peter goes, what am I doing here? What do I want to do? And he, so he started getting, get, uh, trying to do films about, he did a film about the Weddell, Weddell Seal, W-E-D-D-E-L, which is a big, the seals that are in, um, up in Antarctica and underwater and then he decided to do the great white shark and he and he raised the money and then he got the best divers in the world stan waterman ron and valerie taylor and uh and and that became the uh that that was the film and then he hired jim lipscomb to be the 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 the, the, uh, the, the shore guy and so uh it, but it was watching these guys that they'd all made these choices to not just go the easy route but what do i want to do with my life and so I was, when I came home, I, you know, I, I really wanted to get back in music, just to do music. You know, I, I didn't really want to go out and, and spend my life, you know, like this and, and doing sound or, and then coming home and sitting on the, on not a computer, but on a, you know, on a machine. And it did, it, that didn't, it didn't interest me, but music, music did. So that's, that's when I really decided this is my, that's my life, you know. That's an incredible story. So I was realizing, looking back, that I, I think we both kind of, I mean, like I said, I grew up kind of playing along to your music. And then when I was in college, I was studying with Woody Mann, who was a disciple of, of the great Reverend Davis. And he was teaching me every Reverend Gary Davis song, How Under cool. the Sun, which, which I'm, I'm kind of grateful for. And I realized looking back that you grew up, did you ever take lessons from him or would you just play along to his records? Uh, I, uh, my, my, I went to Brooklyn Tech with my brother, brother Harry and my brother Steve. And... Uh, when, my, when I was there, my last year there, early my second year, Harry was, Harry was out of school, but we started a folk folk music club at, at Brooklyn Tech, all boys. And it was 6,000 boys in Brooklyn Tech. And one of the, one of the uh, guys who was there was Stefan Grossman, who is also like Woody Man, but he's written a jillion books about all the right. great black uh, fingerstyle guitarists. So uh, he was taking lessons from Reverend Gary Davis. He's telling us a story. So one day uh, he, he takes... And Harry came in. Harry was uh, was in college, but but he came home for you know Thanksgiving early or something, and we talked. Uh, Stefan said, "Sure, I'll take you up there." So we we jumped on the subway, and from Brooklyn and went all the way up to Harlem, and uh, walked along Harlem. It was kind of a dangerous place at that point. I've heard from Woody about how crazy it was to go over to his yeah. house. <laughs> and it, there was a big, you know, these giant, beautiful uh, uh, apartment houses, which were all built for the Jews in the, in the 30s and the 20s. Right. And now are all uh, mostly black. And we went down underneath and into the back. And in the backyard, there was this little little house with like a one room, two, two around a little house in the backyard of this big complex. And there he was. There was a reverend. And uh, I sat there and watched Stefan Grossman for seven dollars, getting a lesson for an hour and a half, and he was working on. Uh, uh, I should get a guitar, but he's working on. Trying to get home, trying to get home, and watching him and Reverend just with the two fingers and watch him do it, changed the my world. style and that that changed that my world, comment. man. It's just like oh. And then I went home, you know, and I'd, I'd heard a couple of records because maybe he's talking about it. And then the record sounded, that can't be one guy. Right. You know, because the, the, the thumb is, the, but stride piano, that's what it is. Like stride piano with the, with the left hand and the right hand's doing the other stuff. And, uh, and, that, and the thumb is that. And then the fingers are doing this. But he just had just these two, man. That's what he did. And and then and then he would play, you know, you know the stuff. It's 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 amazing stuff, and so uh, that changed my world. And, and I, that I you know I, I I knew how to finger pick at that point, but you know, but but you know like freight train train. Right, the old Elizabeth Conti yeah, that, yeah, that everyone yeah. learns. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but I but and, and I was using uh, I and I started playing uh, finger picks right away because Harry played banjo, and he was really loud on the banjo, 
and I did, I, and I couldn't get the the the, the uh, flat pick. I was like at that time I was like oh, this is crazy. So I, I I started getting finger picks and started learning how to finger pick. That's why you started using finger picks because you were but trying Harry, to keep yeah, up we, with, we were with Harry's ball. Yeah, we we were. Uh, I was twelve, Harry was fourteen, Steve was eleven, and we were Steve and I had been choir boys uh, and also had studied classical instruments. There were four boys. My mother and father, my, my dad was a jazz drummer, Jim Chapin. Right, Chapin, of course. Chapin, right. Yeah. With the famous book, with, the, the, book. with yes. the, the book that every drummer looks at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and dad, uh, my mom divorced when I was three because dad was on the road and he loved two things, drums and women. <laughs> and he was a lovely guy, not a dad. He's not like a favorite uncle. You know, he's like, just, he's doing his thing. But uh, he's, a, he's the reason we got into music because was, he was just a delightful presence in our lives, even though it was out there someplace. Uh, so, and Harry took trumpet, I took clarinet, Steve took piano, and, and but Steve and I, when my mother remarried, we moved to Brooklyn, and Steve and I got in a choir, boys choir. My mother put us into a boys choir. Harry was never in it. So now Harry's 14, I'm 12, Steve's 11. We're out in our uh, country house in Jersey that my grandfather bought, and, and we spent the summers there. And there was one hi-fi, remember hi-fi's in the valley, and that was actually it was two, but there's one that we could play, and that was uh, at my aunt, my mother's sister's house, and uh, she brought in, in uh, the Weavers at Carnegie Hall, recording at 1955 of the Weavers concert that reu the, reunion, the reunion of the Weavers, right, right, and it blew our minds. It was it started out with uh, Darlin' Corey, D Pete Seeger's just you know I, we had no idea, it, but it starts out with a banjo, ding, 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 like this. Starts out. I never forget. It goes like, and the crowd goes crazy because they know the song. I guess I had their bass and four voices, Ronnie Gilbert, that heraldic alto voice that was just wonderful to hear, and three baritones, Pete and Lee Hayes and Fred Hellerman. And this is pre like this Beatles on Ed Sullivan. So this oh, is like oh, your yes. Ed Sullivan moment, kind of. It, that was it. And uh, it was 19, summer of 57, maybe summer of 58. I'm, I'm kind of not sure which, which year. And uh, but that recording not only inspired the Chapin boys, but Tom Paxton, Peter, Paul, and Mary, the right, Kingston Trio, on the the whole folk thing came from them, and uh, it was and and they're still, in my mind, the best folk group I ever heard. You know, just the arrangements are fabulous. Fred Hellerman was a little bit had had some jazz stuff, and Pete was very amazing on on, on banjo. So we listened to that all summer long, and the, and the song and the summer he goes, we could do that, and he got a guitar, and I, I, he got a banjo. And, and, he got, and he got a guitar. In fact, I got the banjo here. It was uh, my grandma. Uh, we were looking for a five-string banjo, and she goes, "I think I think I have one. Wait a minute." And she goes, and she goes down and goes in the basement, and she pulls out. This is the this is the actual brother, one. Harry Forbes, had bought around 1910. Oh my God. And here it is, and uh, it's uh, what's it say? It says Josh Ricketts on here, uh, Philadelphia. It's an old timey banjo, and Harry got it fixed up. Nice old timey sounded. Yeah. So this is it. This is the banjo. I got it fixed up again up, up in uh, in Beacon at Pete's hometown. The guy who fixed Pete's banjos, J.R. Storm, fixed it up for me. And it's just I just love it. It's it's old old timey banjo. Nineteen. 
around 1900, 19, something like that, before World That's, War One. So did you ever take like formal lessons or were you always playing along to records and, and sort playing of along you records. and Harry were challenging uh, each other? I, I never took, uh, I, I took later on, I took some classical lessons, but that was when I was already a professional, just to, just to sort of figure out, get my hands working a little different way. Uh, but, but I didn't, so I, 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 then I got, I got a K guitar, you know, I took it, it was, the strings about this far, it hurt my hands. And then my dad took me up to Manny's Music on 48th, the very famous store in New York City. Of course, yeah, and yeah. My dad, you know, whose book was sold there all the time and every drummer wanted it. Was he a big deal? Like when he walked in, did everyone know him? They're like, Jim, uh, hey, Henry, Jim. Henry and, Henry and Manny's new, new dad. And they knew my grandma because she was the one who actually on the phone, do you need more books? She was the one who kept going. But dad would walk in and, I'm, uh, I, and I'd walk in with him and so you know and 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 oh who's this and so i i knew henry and and, and manny and 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 our and our pictures were on the wall over there and stuff when we when our first record gun anyway so dad bought, bought me a, an epiphone guitar which i which actually my daughter abigail's playing now for like 125 dollars now it's worth you know in the thousands but it's a really good right. great epiphone texan just when just when uh gibson bought epiphone and so wow. it, it, was a, it was a gibson guitar but it said epiphone on it and I took that to the Indian Ocean, as a matter of fact, and, uh, and, and I set, played. Anyway, so the, to make a long story a little shorter, uh, we became the Chapin Brothers. And we, the first, and Steve and I were still in the choir, so our first concert was at the spring choir concert in the gym, and we sang uh, This Land is Your Land and uh, two other Weaver's songs. And the thing was with the Chapins was that Harry was a good musician, but he, but he had two brothers who could sing harmony because we were choir boys. That blood harmony so, thing. That's the... so he didn't have to worry about that, and 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 so Harry always we we singing melody, and Steve and I would work out harmonies for it for it. So we could we could sing right away, you know, and uh, and we sort of did we did that for you know for all through our school years. My mom wanted us to go to school and get, get a thing, but we did that, and and it was around Brooklyn, around Manhattan, and we were, we were 15 minutes from Greenwich Village, on the subway. High so, Street, and, yeah. and you jump on there and you get out West Fourth, and there we were, and we played the bitter end. The Hootenanny is the bitter end and various places, you know. Absolutely. So, okay, so you, you know, sort of around the summer at some point, you end up, of course, you're on Make-A-Wish, you're doing this thing with sharks on a boat. Harry goes to New York, he starts playing shows. He gets into a, this bidding war with Electra, with Jack Holzman and Clive Davis. Were you, do you remember this? Did he talk to you? Because these are like oh. two legends in the music industry. I, when uh, this is going on, we're like, what, like, what was happening? A little backstory was that, uh, Harry was very involved with us. We had a band called the Chapins at that point. Steve right. and myself, without Harry, Steve and myself, Doug Walker and Phil Forbes, drummer and a bass player, and we do electric and acoustic stuff. And and we became the house band for the, at the bitter end. Paul Colby wow. managed us for a year. We opened for everybody, you know, David Steinberg and uh, 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 Randy Newman and Elephant. No, I mean, all, you know, all kinds of things. You know, all these people, uh, the, the comedians, you know, and and stuff. Every other week we were there, uh, but anyway, Harry was writing for us at that point, and he was he was working in films. And then he decided to get back. He, he really, and he kept writing these long songs with long story songs that we didn't fit our our thing. So uh, the summer comes, and we're out of school, and we rent the Village Gate, which is the, another famous club there. And Art Delugoff, who owned it, gave us. Uh, there was a show was playing there called uh, Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris. Long. Uh, the Jacques Brel show, and that was a huge hit, and it went from, uh, I think, seven to to nine. And at nine o'clock, we got the, the club on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday for four hundred bucks a week, and we could just do it. And we had a, we had a review uh, from Rock Magazine that said, "The Chapins, the best band I've seen this year." And we put it made a flag and put it outside, and hopefully, a bus of tourists would come or somebody. <laughs> Our wives and, and girlfriends did the door. And we, we, we were the lead act. And, we, and Harry says, can I open for you guys? So I said, sure. So, so he opens the first, the first time and does a half an hour. And it's hard the first week. He didn't know how to do it. The songs were kind of meh. And then we came out and we, and we were a good man. And we just kill, you know. So he, instead of most people, would just say, oh, it's not going to work. I go away. And Harry says, I need a band. So he, uh, he comes. He's living out in Long, Long Beach, Long Island. And, and I'm living that summer with my mom because I just got back from Blue Water, White Death and stuff. Actually, this is later, but, but I'm at my mom's apartment in Brooklyn, 
he he puts out the call to get some players, and he gets John Wallace, who was a uh, in our choir with us, a wonderful singer, who's now a bass player, a truck driver. His truck is broken. Okay, I'll play with you. And he gets a guitar player and a cello player, and they spend a week, two weeks actually, rehearsing the songs at my mom's house every day, and so we, Steve and I, were part of it. You know, we're there helping him do all that stuff. And okay, now two weeks later, he comes back, and he. And he opens up a ding, 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 ding. The lights are cold, and then you realize it. it was raining hard in Frisco. I needed one more fare to make my night. Wait, wait. He, you walk in, and, and he's just playing this, or no? This is this is how that in two weeks of rehearsing with he the, comes uh, up with this. Where and we 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 knew he, we'd heard it all in rehearsal, but then so now two weeks later, first he he does a, does a week. It's terrible, and so we have a couple other people playing for us, and then and then then he comes but, back. But does it. he have the song? And he's, he, it's the arrangement that that we're working. The arrangement was was worked out with the, with, the, with the orchestra with, with a cello. His manager there was Fred Cooley, who who would work with the Sherwoods, the great singing group up in up in uh, at, at Cornell. You know, the, the acapella singing group, like right. the and Poops and stuff. And Harry was was sort of hanging around there. He didn't sing well enough to be in there, but he knew the guys. And Fred, uh, who really, really understood vocals, did a lot of the arranging. Steve, did, my brother Steve, did a lot of arranging. So did I. We all were there helping out, helping Harry invent this thing. And two weeks later, he opens up and and it's a, and with a cello, you know, and and, and ding ding ding, the finger style thing. The whole thing was there. It was like, whoa, what is this? And 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 by by you know four weeks later, and then he gets on the phone with every people you know think, pretending hi this is joe schmo I'm, I'm, i want you to come down and see harry chapin at the da, 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 da. And he was talked to every end of the summer they started coming to harry see harry and new york times gave him a great review harry chapin sings gorgeous love songs and there was a woman who worked for jack holspin uh ann pertill who loved harry believed in him totally and she kept bugging uh jack to come see him and 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 do it so he finally did Oh, and he and he gave him an offer, and then Harry wanted Columbia because because Clive Davis had Paul Simon and Dylan and uh, you know all that stuff, and so that was the place. And so and so then uh, Clive Davis gives him a bigger thing, and and and, and Harry calls up Jack and says, "You're going to see all this. You know, there's, there's a documentary coming out this week. I can't. It's coming out on Friday, right? And it, the, we tell this whole story. It, it's, it's 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 an amazing story because Jack Holzman tells it." He says, wow. And, and what he said was, I thought I'd signed Harry. And then, and then Harry calls me and says, I'm going to go with Columbia, which kind of pissed me off. But me and Clive, we've, we've been, gone through a lot of people. He tried to take Judy Collins away from me. You know, he goes, <laughs> he started, and then he said, so I said to Harry, listen, I'm coming, I'm coming to New York. I'm going to be there at 630 a.m. And just expect it. And I'm not leaving until we get some. Harry, Bing, 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 6.30 in the morning on Long Beach, Long Island. There's Jack, and he walks in. And what he offered him at the time was the biggest record deal in history, which not only was a lot of money, but, but all the recording fees were free. Wow. It wouldn't cost, it wouldn't take anything out of him. And he wouldn't release a record the month before, the month of, or the month after. Harry would just, just be his right there. And that's why Taxi hit, because... Taxi, when any other situation, Taxi never would have made it because it was too long, seven, seven minutes, you know. Right, of course. Yeah, yeah. You know, American Pie later on. But, but, you know, and, but Jack totally believed in it. And they went FM, not, not singles. They didn't go to AM at all. They went to FM until they got the whole the noise happening. And really, in, in, on the pop charts, it did about, I think, like 37 or something. It didn't, it never made a big noise. But it made a career, you know, because anybody who ever heard that song, there's a great thing about Billy Joel talking about it. He says, man, that song. He says, you know, people used to say that, uh, think I was, I was copying Harry with Piano Man. I used to piss me off, but now I'm, I'm proud of that. <laughs> He's great. Anyway, it's, it's a, the documentary is really worth seeing. Uh, and it'll be out uh, on Friday. Uh, anybody wants to see it, uh, go to harrychapinmusic.com, I think it's called. Is that right? Let me see. I, don't, I, I think it's Harry, but you'll, you'll be able to find it. If not, I'll do a plug at the beginning or yeah. something yeah. for you. Yeah. So at this point, your brother becomes a millionaire, right? Because he gets no. the advance. No, no. Uh, there was very. There was no. I mean, it, it all went into the record and then the touring. You know, to go out there and you're touring is when you start. You know, you're, you're opening act for everybody. You know, uh, right. And and you're and you you have 
fabulous moments and you have one where like he was went to a record record company and he went wanted to get airplay and harry was great at salesman and got got you know went, went around but he did something in houston it was a big uh the record company uh, the, the the station i think in houston texas harry called me right after this happened and he said uh so it's a it's a radio station it's a big rock station so we're in between the temptations and Sly and the Family Stone, or something like that. He said, and they're all, you know, and now we come out. It was raining hard. It was he said it was not the best of our audiences, <laughs> but he, had, he also had he had moments that were just fabulous, you know. And then, then he gets the Tonight Show, right? Of course. And this one, legendary. He was the first artist to get called back the next night. Well, what happened was he he does Taxi. And they go to, and the place goes nuts. They go to commercial. They come back. The place is still standing and clapping. And so he comes back the next night. They asked him to come back. Come back. Yeah, it was, it was legendary stuff. So you know, it was an amazing kind of you know, uh, run. Yeah, and we yeah, we were a part of it all. Uh, and then Steve, uh, Harry always sort of felt that we should be part of his thing. You know, he always wanted us playing, and I opened for him a lot. And then in, uh, uh, when he did the Broadway show, Steve and I played with him and did the, did the were the music directors and. Uh, and I was his understudy because he never got sick or anything. He was, so I never did anything. But I was in the band. And then we started touring with him. And I did that for about six or eight months. And then, and then it got to be just, you know, it was just being little brother in this situation. It was like, you know, being, you know, Tommy Cash instead of me. And so I, so I said, I, I'm, I'm just doing my own thing. And it, and it was fine. It was the best, best thing I could have done. So, but we, so, we, we're, we're very close. And, and watching that whole thing was pretty amazing, you know. Wow. Really yeah. So, in, so you, your first kids record comes out in 1988, Family Tree, and kind of what we were saying earlier, you had you know this realized that there was this gap in the kids music market, and I'm curious, you start performing this record, does, what kind of confidence does it take to do this? Did people think you were crazy? I guess kids music is, is kind of associated with folk music, but does it take a lot of confidence to get up there and, and sing kids songs kind of seriously? If you had an audience of of uh, four to 10 year olds and their parents. I always said this was family music, not kids songs. The ones I, I did a couple of these where they put the kids in the front and the parents sit in the back and talked. And, 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 I, and I said, never again. <clears throat> so what we, you're gonna sit with your kids and we're gonna do this together. You know, we're a family and we're a tree, our roots. And it's all about the material. And frankly, uh, this stuff is built for kids. You know, uh, the songs, to go larger, a folk song, what is a folk song? It's a story, many kinds, but but largely it's a story song with a singable chorus. Tell you a little story, and we sing this together. And, and then a little chorus, and we sing this together. That works just the way stories work for anybody. And the question with a kid's record was how to do stories that are clear enough for kids and interesting to kids, but also well-crafted, funny, um, musically delightful for parents. Right. So that when you're listening to it, this is, I mean, we, and we had great budgets, you know, I was, I was with A&M and they gave me, I think, I don't know, 50 grand or something to do a record. And uh, so we could have horns and we could have strings and we could have background singers and you hired the best bass player, Wayne Petswater and, Richard Crooks and, uh, you know, an electric guitar guy. And I had, and John Colbert, who's my longtime collaborator. And, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, and you realize, oh man, I never had this, you know? And so our idea was to just make great records that were kid friendly and adult safe. And that was the trip. And the answer was, no, it was not scary. I've been playing colleges, man. You know, let me tell you, solo doing colleges, I, I, when I, in 76, my first adult record came out and I did the National uh, College Booking Convention. Uh, and my brother Jeb, who had been working with Harry that, at that point as his light man, said, well, so you got this thing that's very good. Who's going to run your table? I said, my table? Yeah, you got to have a booth to get those kids to come to this thing. He said, I'll do it for you. I'll tell you what, you give me 50%. I said, okay, great. So he got me to, uh, and they said, now we need something. Do you have to this, I, this is interesting. This is in terms of booking. Yeah, yeah. He says, uh, now we got to get something to get these kids to come see you. So let's figure out something. And my wife had a, a, a kind of a, a clothing store, but she had African beads. So we got thongs and an African bead and made 400 to 600 of them. And if you come to the booth, you get one of these, but only, and Jeb would be there, 
you got to come see Tom's showcase. Okay, come in. So I came, they came. They were fired up already. And I did a showcase, and it killed. And so the Southern Convention was going to pick one person. So the, so the Southern part of it, so it was like, I, I don't know, 70 colleges. And they all, so I, I suddenly had a tour from August, you know, a, a, a freshman week in, in August to Thanksgiving without every night I had a show in the South. So I, I flew to down DC, rented a car, and I came home on Thanksgiving, but I played every night. And let me tell you, that's how you learn to be a performer. Because sometimes you're playing in the lunchroom. Sometimes you're playing a Saturday night after a football game, homecoming football game, and everybody's drunk. Sometimes right. you're playing in a little coffee house and there's four people. Sometimes you're playing in, in, in a theater and there's five, 400. I, I, yeah. But I learned how to do the college thing great. You know, it's just that, that, whole, that whole tour. And that, uh, you know, a drunk college kid is a lot like a kid. <laughs> it's like a child. And so you learn how to, how to move the energy your way. You know, let's do this, you know. How do you, because I feel like now working in the industry, I always judge an act by their ability to shut up a ring. If they can come on stage and everyone can shut up and listen to them, you always think there, there's something here. And I was rewatching some of your videos and there's moments where like the kids will start talking and you'll just like control the energy and you'll get everyone to listen to you again. How is that because you, does that start with the song, with the craft of the song? The song has to be that good, or how, how do you how do you do that? Well, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, it's really you learn it for one thing, and 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 but always have something, you know. I call it getting through the neck of the bottle. You know, there's this thing you want to get to this place, and there's this little place to get, to get through, and so that you you find a way to go. How to do it, you know? Uh, and there's ways to get interested. Um, you have tried and true things, but the material is the biggest thing. Because if I, if I go up there and sing, uh, you know, Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man to a group of kids, after about the, the, the you know, the fourth or fifth line, they're going to go, I don't know what this means. But if you say, uh, Mikey took my truck and he broke it. Then he turned to me and said, so what? So I said, say you're sorry, but he won't say sorry. No, he won't say sorry because I'm not. You got him. Or this is a song, it's an old story about a, a dinosaur. Pretty new song. A stegosaurus in the forest munching on some hay, lay down a snooze in a bed of ooze and sadly You find a way to get through the neck of the bottle, get something that's really interesting uh, uh, for, you know, and, and, try, and that's, that's, that's part of the trick. Clear songs about interesting stuff. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, there's there's so many things. I, I open these open a school show with. Uh, hey, you walk out and there's a thousand kids from from schools. So this is not doesn't happen now in the pandemic, but it used to be in the '90s. I was playing all these schools, and uh, and you walk out and you go, look at all you guys. How'd you get here? How many of you walked here? You know, how many of you had your parents drive here? How many of you came here in a big yellow banana <laughs> how many of you came in a big yellow balloon how many of you came in a big yellow bus <laughs> and then you've got here it come around the corner big and yellow and loud can't you hear it so that you so pick you up the school bus crowd <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 that's and that's what you do all through the show. And and after you've done a couple disco singing songs, we say, okay, this is just this is a song with with no no instruments. Yeah, you, you, you talk about talk about the banjo. You know, this is an interesting story. What is this? Look at this. It's a drum with a stick and strings. You know where it comes from? You know, Africa. You know, and the same thing with the, with the guitar and the auto harp. And then you say, let's do something with just our hands and our voices. Put your right hand up. Left hand up. Boom. Alphabet soup. We have you know, Rags have a letter, family tree. You do. So you just find things that, that are action and and you teach them how to sing along and you teach them all this stuff. And it's it's it hap it worked for the very first time I did it, but you get better at it, you know. Because the material, I totally believe in the material, and and the material just 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 is is, is boffo. You know, you got I, I the best thing I ever did was ask John Forster to help me write the first record. 
and you check him out uh, entering Mary and some of his he's a he's a theater writer but a, and, a, and a wonderful writer what he taught me was the thing that most folk guys don't learn except some of them uh, is don't take the pen away too soon you know he said uh, because he's used to I'm used to you get a song close let me go out and sing it to you and then you sort of find by singing it which works and what no 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 he's a theater writer it goes to something it's going to be there so he no, let's look at this how about the and that really helped me enormously a lot of ways he helped me but but I really learned how to write in terms of right the craft of fixing it you know you, the first thing is inventing it oh that's oh this is cool you know sing a whale song sing a whale how cool and then we have well we want to make each of those verses rhyme in there just so i punch like you know uh, on a fateful day in the month of May, I was sitting catching fish when a magic whale swam up to the rail and said, please make a wish. So they said, all those little rhymes go pump, 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 all the way through, tell a story. He says, let me take this home and just, you know, fix those rhymes. And so, and I, and that was like, oh, ding, 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 you know, you, you learn from the best. And, and I have had this wonderful collaborators, you know, and, and I learn, and, and you keep learning. And it's, it's like, and it's helped my, my adult stuff as well. So, and it's also helped my, adult performance as well you know i used i because of the college stuff i used to do a lot of shtick uh, when i was doing an adult show and now i i have such so much better material i can just tell a story and let lead it through and then tell this and then do a thing then you know you learn how to does do that could you take those elements of like you know you put them in an adult context but the elements of like explaining what a banjo is or like catching them in the beginning with a line do you does that transfer in ways to the adult shows? It does. Uh, you don't have to do the the, the shtick, but you the same it. way, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and and also I learned that people really are interested in in the story of uh, you know here's a, you know they they paid the money to come see you, and so uh, I've played with many artists who just no 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 no, but I I Harry was same way and I'm I'm the same way. There's a wonderful thing happening if you get them. Uh, involved in, in the story and this is you know this is interesting how this happened no 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 and then he goes leading the song and help me with the chorus and all of a sudden you're 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 in this as opposed to you know a little a little guy standing up there all of a sudden you're talking to, to, to people and, and and that's a wonderful thing and actually in some ways that's what I, I really adore about a show you said you know you know when you, you sing a song and it's like you know, and as, as much as it is when it's, you know, rocking, uh, when you get them so, to really follow the through there, where they're, you know. Are you like, because I'm sure that there are nights that are better than others in terms of the audience. If, if you if you find a group of kids that are just really crazy, you can't get them together, are you hard on yourself? Or do you go, ah, they're just kids. What, what do they know? <laughs> oh, well, I think you're always, uh, you're very aware of, of what, how it worked or didn't work. And you're trying to figure, was there something I could have done? Uh, but very, uh, I, I remember playing, I used to play this uh, uh, in Pittsburgh, the uh, Children's Festival, and they always put me in an auditorium that had so much echo in it just by naturally. Yeah. It was really hard. You know, it's a war, 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 war kind of thing. And, and it was always so much harder. People liked it, but it, but it was much harder to get stuff because it was it sort of this, this soup going, whoa, whoa, whoa. And that was the hardest stuff. And the other thing that's really hard is if nothing comes back. You know, if it's... Uh, first time I played Canada, it was like, whoa, they were so polite, you know, <laughs> having grown up in New York City, you know, and, uh, and doing stuff and, uh, and the island, you know, and around the, the tri-state area. Uh, but there were, I, I learned that was great, but it, it, sometimes it's like, hello, hello, you know. Yeah. You're not used so, to, you're used to having the, the, this going on and you, and you bounce off that, you know. Right, right, right. So, okay, so speaking of kind of like a little bit of the writing process and working with John Forster, so like this Pretty Planet, for example, yeah. when you're writing that song, do you, do you have that, that progression? Do you start with that progression or, or do you think, hey, we need to write a song about the world? Like, like how, how does that song come together? We started with that recording, uh, which is Family Tree. By, right. I, I, I approached John and said, I want to do a kid's record. So what, what do you want to do? And as, as we discussed it in the first thing, we said, let's use the folk forms. And one of the one of the folk forms is around. And I used to do that with my my girls in the car because it would, you know there'd be somebody they'd be fighting in the back. Let's well let's go, 
by the waters, the waters of Babylon. And, you know, singing back and forth, you know. And so we said, maybe we could do a round. And then John came up with this great, the first line, um, this pretty planet spinning through space. You're a garden, you're a harbor, you're a holy place. I went, wow. It was right at the end of, of the session. And I went home and said, we're going to do this tomorrow. And I wrote the tune to that, you know. Uh, and it was like... Uh, but I remember, and then we came back, and then we finished it, you know. This pretty planet spinning through space. You're a garden, you're a harbor, you're a holy place. And that chord progression can go through the whole thing. And he and, he and I together worked out how to, how to make the rest, of, the rest of it work. And, what the way, and, uh, and that song... You know, that's going to outlive me, you know, and outlive John. <laughs> it's, I tell you what, Zach, you go on, just, just say, uh, go on YouTube and say, This Pretty Planet, you'll find thousands of those, especially in the pandemic, because every teacher who has to do a song oh, I know, from, yeah. from far away is, puts, that, uh, puts that up, and we're going to do this song now. And Claudia, every morning, sends me another one or two or three or four. And uh, so it, it's, it's astonishing. And it, it's amazing how a song like that in a kid's record. But it did go around the world once. You know, it's one of the songs used to wake up the astronauts on the Discovery 7 space shuttle. We woke up John Glenn on that space shuttle. That was the one, one of the publicity team said, maybe we can have, have each of the, of the uh, astronauts pick a song to have. And someone, somebody picked, you know, It's a Wonderful Life by Satchmo. And uh, the pilot's wife had three kids and she had my tape. And she said, "Pretty Planet, you got to do that." And so he did. And I didn't know it was going to happen. They didn't, they didn't mention it at all. But I was on the road that weekend. It was a Sunday, a Sunday morning. They did it, and I and I get home and and I had on my and I before before cell phones, you know, I get home and on the my my whole answering machine was totally full. Hey, did you hear what you? Hey, Tom, yeah, yeah, because it was it was a it was made it was like yeah. a publicity thing for them, you know. And then later on, I mean, it's happened so many times with that song. Uh, Christopher Reeve, uh, the, the the actor who who had the terrible accident and was right. paralyzed. Superman. Superman, and uh, he uh, his I was I was playing I was, I was about to play uh, down in uh, in Princeton, and his mother he grew up in Princeton. His mother was there, and Claudia at my office says uh, calls me up and says, I just got a call from someone who says they're Christopher Reeve's mother. And he's coming to the concert tomorrow and wanted to know if Dana, his wife, could sing Pretty Planet because it's their favorite song with you, can do the G.D. Collins part. I'm not sure if it's, I said, Claudia, say yes. You know. <laughs> so it that happened. Uh, she happens to be, happened to be a wonderful singer as well as an actress. And so we're doing the show and I said, tell her, uh, 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 tell her uh, it'll be right after Family Tree. And so she knows what to do. So we, I'm trying to do a show. It's a daytime show, and it's totally full. We used to play there all the time. And in, in somewhere in uh, the second song, after he's in there, I see them wheeling him in the back with the, the giant. He was a six foot five, my big, big tall, you know, in this giant gurney. And 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 I'm going to go on and forget about it. Then we the family tree. And I look over in there, and on the side, there's there's Dana and their 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 boy. So she came out and sang it with us. She did, killed just did the Jude Collins part. It was just amazing. And then afterwards, we. Hung out after after I you know I go out and sign stuff and then and they waited and, and I spent forty five minutes with with Chris and his wife and, the, and wow. said how, how much the song had meant to him and to them uh, during this time and you say whoa that's this is a magical thing that you you know this song that that we loved and we wrote and you throw out there and it goes out and in ways that you you know you don't dream it's going to do and but you're 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 thrilled. Absolutely. Okay. I have a couple other like nerdism things that I've always kind of wondered. Sure. Um, um, street fair. There's that little rap in the middle where you started like going off with the foods at the street fair. Do you write a whole bunch of foods out and kind of see what rhymes and kind of what fits? How do you come up with that little section? Cause that section always freaked me out. <laughs> uh, well, Michael, it was, that was Michael, Mark and I, and we, the street fair, street fair, and, and, and well, we just had to, uh, you know, he is, he's amazing in terms of just coming up with, with, with all kinds of arcania and things and funny things. Uh, but uh, that one, I think we just, 
we were the two of us were riffing there, sitting at the table. It's grown men playing, you know. We were at a table, and you know, in my kitchen, you know, in the morning, he would come over about quarter to ten and leave by my lunch, you know, and we see no more. And uh, and so we were we're just firing through on this whole thing of how to the street fair and the stuff, and it, we were at a point in the in the record where we were really firing together. It was really you know, first few days is always like, and then you start, to, oh yeah, and then now we then it starts like this. So it was just bubbling. You know, so what, what what else in the street fair? Oh, I always love this. Okay, blah, 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 blah. and and so I, I don't even remember, but I know how, that's how we did it. I mean, for instance, the other one is Gertie's Birdseed Diner. Do you know that one? Yeah, and that that was Michael and my and. You know, there's a, it's a song about this uh, bird, the, the, the bird feeder is a bird seed diner. And the way that happened was Michael is there at 10 in the morning. He goes, I've been here three days in a, in a row and the same birds come in at the same time. It's like a diner. And I said, diner? Hey, a bird seed, bird seed diner. He's Gertie's bird seed diner. Boom, you know, and then hear the cackle of the grackle and the moaning of the dove and the mockingbird rocking from the branch above and the catbird sitting in the catbird seat says, pull up, perch and eat. Here in Nashville, Warbler sing a country song, and all the birdies at the counter are chirping along. They go flap, 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 tweet, tweet, tweet at Gertie's Birdseed Diner. You know, the blue bird special. So we, and that one, we pulled out the, you know, the bird thing and said, okay, who's, who, who comes to this, di- this diner? Right. <laughs> I was re-listening to that song last night, and I never, I never connected with the Nashville line. And now I, I, now I was thinking about that now. I was like, now I'm in Nashville. <laughs> I, I love that there was a Nashville warbler. I thought that, you know, I, I never heard of it, you know, and, and yeah. look at the bird. Hey, Mike, there's a Nashville warbler. Nashville warbler. Pull up a perch and eat. Yep. <laughs> so, so it is, it, it is that, that joy of, of, of playing with these things where you, where you get a smile out of it. And, and I think, and, and the uh, street fair is, is one of those where we just went for it we live in a in a in the rockin county you know and there's like there's lots of street fairs that happen and there's one in nyack up, up, the, up the road here and i grew so, up in um in hastings on hudson so oh yeah so you know exactly where so i'm right there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so it, so it was like uh uh we, we were just sort of visualizing and following that through the whole the whole deal there i don't that, that was a, 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 a very kind of a full-throated uh, album that we, we just kind of worked all of the songs very quickly and, and, and very happy with them. But, but it was interesting. Uh, we were, got on a flow there, so it's hard to remember that specifically. Some of the early ones, were, which you took a little longer and just sort of inventing it, you tend to remember more. Is there is there a song that you wish you could play for Harry if there was one of your kids' songs or one song that was special that, that, that you wish you could have the opportunity to play for him? Oh, there's a bunch, actually. Um... The one, uh, uh, well, the, the Hunger at one, I would have loved, loved to play for him. Uh, in 5-4, there's enough for everyone. Father, daughter, mother, son, there's enough for everyone in our green and growing home. And uh, it's pretty pretty planet. And there's a bunch of, I think he would have loved, you know, Cousins and uh, that. From the desert, from the mountain, from the desert to the plain, from the mountain to the plain, there's enough for everyone in our green and growing home. Everyone, no matter who, there's a place reserved for you. There's enough for everyone in our green growing home. Uh, what else? Let's see. I mean, there's so many of the story songs, Cousins, he would have loved. Um, uh, I kind of like some of the crazy ones like Borneo. You know, that is my favorite song of yours. <laughs> that is my favorite Tom Chapin song. It really is. That is the one I always listen to. Cause it's an adventure song. <laughs> it is. It just, it just goes rocking, you know. And and what I love about that one is it's it's so kid-like in the fact that you don't worry about the, you don't worry about the uh, the, the logic of it, you know. They, 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 yeah. they're, they're taking a bike ride and they go to they go and everything had to end with O, you know, Chicago, Reno, uh, Borneo. Of course, it's from Borneo, Borneo. 
I got a friend, his name is Joe. That's me and Michael, man. We just just riffed on that. It was just so much fun. I always had some place to go. And I called him up, you want to play? No, you and I are going away. Today's the day, says my friend Joe. We're, We're gonna go on to our way to Borneo. <laughs> That's a great like Pete Townsend moment right there. It is. It is. <laughs> and, and I had the best players. Anyways, it, that was just great fun to play, you know, just, and, and to invent this thing. And then to go in the studio with these guys who just can make it live, you know. Uh, I listened back just recently to a... a this pretty planet and 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 listening to richard crook's drumming and and petswater both both were now gone and i miss him dearly but richard uh richard, richard crooks had had that that kind of ringo joy of playing but with great chops you know yeah <laughs> and and he just like he just made every, you know just then they came in and just made these things go like this just you know and you just ride on it and it was so much fun you know now the other, I, the, yeah, the other yeah. ones is the, is the whole Bruno Chronicles. Harry would have liked those. You know, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So I, I know we're running a little short on time, but but I also really wanted to ask: Do you remember hearing Cat's Cradle for the first time? And I'm I'm oh, sure. curious. Do, do you think Harry was a good judge of his work? Because I've heard the story that he didn't pick that song. Jack Holzman was the one who picked that single. Do you think Harry knew how talented he was or, or do you think it was a little lost on him? Oh, I think he knew how talented he was, but he was also uh, never one to, it was always about when, when in doubt, do something, you know? So he'd write it and then let's get it done. And that's the next one. Next one. And uh, he was not one to, to sort of sit there and say, you know, just revel in this. It was always about moving forward. And, uh, Cats started as a, a poem Sandy wrote about her, her her first husband and his father, and then Harry took it and, and made a tune out of it. But uh, uh, he was he he didn't didn't think it was a hit record, and, you know, or even a, a single. And Jack was fought with him, and and Harry said, "Okay, well, if you, well, you'll give me another chance to when this dies, right?" He said, yeah. "And then of course it goes to number one." So I he got a, I got a call from him. he was on the road because Tom. Cats is number one in Billboard, Cashbox, and what was it, what was it, I forget the third, the th all three. And you know what all I'm thinking about? I said, what? How do I follow it up? He said, this is a bitch, man. You know, it's got to be going, not to get in there that's good. Because you get here and all you say, oh, man, how am I going to, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, now this is what I expected. Right. What, 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 how am I going to get another one? And he never did, of course, but it was it was really interesting to hear that from him, you know, was was that thought. And by the end, he was also really involved in the hunger issue. Uh, right, so, of course. So he loved performing and stuff, but the, the writing wasn't here. The writing was here at the end. And uh, so, but but what a what a song that is. I mean, that that song, I've done it many times, uh, and uh, it it's it's a it's a true song. No matter who you are, what kind of child you were, what kind of child you are, what kind of parent you are, were. We're kind of you know it's just a true song and and very few songs are that true you know some love songs are and stuff but that one just just the way billy joel in the uh uh quotes uh, taxi said just the way in taxi at the end where uh she hands him a 20 dollar bill and and another man might have been angry another man might have been hurt another man never would have let it go i stashed a bill in my shirt and billy joel in the film goes that's true I don't know if it's true, but it's true. Right. <laughs> you know? He said, I got chilled, man. I heard that. I said, man, you know, that, that's, that's, that's the best. And Harry's best stuff was as good as anybody's, you know. But I think he was also too quick to, you know, Paul Simon, uh, uh, Bruce, take a lot of time and really craft, 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 and, and don't let something out unless it's, you know. And Harry was... That's it. Let's go next one. You know, you know, and and uh, busy doing a lot of stuff, and, and and I think that hurts. That hurts some of the songs, but as I say, the best stuff is like, whew, you know. And he was a he was he was a very good uh, critic too. Uh, I know that as a younger brother because he would uh, at one point he said, "You got to write a second record," and you know, and and, and I, I don't know, but well, just bring me your stuff. And so I, I went out there for about four nights in a row with stuff, and and he, this needs blah, 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 this needs this, you know. And he and he and he did a whole actually. Sandy sent me a thing. He he was t doing some uh, songwriting, 
things, and and they uh, somebody sat down and, and recorded it all and, and wrote about interesting stuff. Maybe maybe we can find a way to get that out there sometimes. But wow, yeah. And I also didn't realize, and I, I learned this last night that I want to learn a love song is I, is a true story, yeah. which to me I thought was funny because that almost seems like the least likely to be true out of all out of all of, yeah. the, of his hits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, well, it was the way he met Sandy, you know, that he had, uh, and and uh, so, uh, well, he was not one to, to to have to stand on truth, but that one was was true, you know. Right. You, you just follow the good story, you know, and he would know that Harry, who was often untruthful, but, but always interesting. You know, he, he follow, say, well, let's not let truth get in the way of a good story here. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Which means it's actually, totally actually it was, it was a, almost, almost a true story in the sense that he got a, t a hack license. It was about to drive. Did you ever hear this story? No, please tell me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's, he's, uh, he's working in documentary films. He can't, it's the first Nixon recession. Can't get a job. He has an apartment to pay for and he's uh, okay. So he takes out a hack license in New York city. He's, it's now it's Friday night. He has to, Monday night. He's going to get the cab from midnight to 8 a.m. or something, whatever it is. And uh, and uh, all weekend he's lying in bed. Go. What happens if? In the thing, it's Sue, but it's her real name is Claire. His girlfriend from uh, 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 he had a girlfriend who was uh, the daughter of Eastern Airlines, a real rich girl, and. And we always took subway. We're we're New York, New York City kids, you know. And, and she and his, her parents said, "Here's money. Never take a subway. Take a cab. It's dangerous in the subway." Blah, blah, blah. I know that Harry guy, but you just don't do it. You know. So, so it, so he's thinking, "What happens if Claire gets in my cab? What the? What am I going to say here?" And uh, on Monday he got two offers for films, and so he took them. Never drove, but the story was there. It was right in his head. And he, and he started writing that story, that story right, right wow. then. And, and, he, and he sang it to us. Uh, and we didn't quite hear it until, it until he put the whole arrangement together, you know. He wanted us to sing it, and it was like, but I, it was like, it needed a, needed a guy just to sit there and tell you, tell you the story and, and the way he did. So, uh, yeah, it, it was, it, it, and, and, uh, the baby never cries. That's another one that that on the first record that uh, was a true story of one of his girlfriends who's who has had a, a husband had broken up and, and and he would visit her at night and 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 uh, the baby and never saw the baby you know so he, and that became a song. So wow. the early ones were, were were kind of those kind of things. But he was actually writing a lot of poetry before that too. That's one of the reasons those songs are so erudite and so clear. He was very involved with trying to, he thought he might, Sandy said, I thought I was going to marry a, 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 you know, a, a poet who had, had no money and never would have money, you know, and then it turns out, whoa, what? The shooting star, you know? Right, right, right. So. That is, that is so cool. Tom, this has been such a thrill. I feel like this hour flew by. This was so fun. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Be before I leave run, you've, you've so graciously played the banjo a couple times. Can I trouble you for one more song b before you run? Let me get, let me get a guitar out, play something. All right, had to go get the guitar. Which guitar is this? Can I just ask quickly? This is a Grit Laskin guitar. Grit Laskin from Canada with a wonderful inlay guy. He, Who does amazing asked, inlay work. Yeah, he made, made I asked him for a, he says a, a week before, a month before I was done, he said, the guitar is done. What do you want on the hip peghead? And I said, I don't know. How about a, a blues guy? So he said, oh, that's interesting. So he went in the, in the he's, he's in Toronto. So he goes to the Toronto library and gets a picture of some unknown blues guy. Yeah. And, and puts this on there. We were talking to Reverend Gary Davis, you know, it's like. Oh, I got the wrong finger pick on here. Got my banjo pick on. Let's see. The song I first heard with Reverend Gary Davis was. Thanks to the river. Lord, I have a whole lot of trouble trying to get home. Yeah, that, that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. But, uh, I've used this on a couple of, the, the, that, that, that kind of ragtime picking on a couple of things. Here, I'll, I'll do one of the kids' things. A stegosaurus in the forest munching on some hay. Lay down a snooze in the bed of ooze and sadly passed away. Her body changed and rearranged as she sank beneath the soil. No 
And she turned to slime and then she turned to oil So she disappears for a jillion years Till finally she is found By a guy named Bill with an oil drill Who sucks her from the ground Bill pipes that poor old dinosaur To an oil refinery Where they bubble and boil and change that oil Into stuff for you and me R-E-C By C-L-E That's the way supposed to be. The earth recycles and so do we. R-E-C-Y-C-L-E. You want to see me playing? I'll, I'll, I'll do a little bit here. Move it back a little bit so you see the guitar. Now from the late Jurassic, it's fantastic how our dino friend Become petroleum and still that's not the end. From dino juice, they now produce a million plastic, plastic jugs and stegosaurus drinking straws. Stegosaurus mugs, REC, YCLE. That's the way it's supposed to be. The earth recycles and so do we. REC, YCLE. system works, things don't disappear. We turn sand into window glass and roots into root beer. We cut and mine and we refine and make these things and then use them not just once, not just twice, but again and again and again and again and again. And if a dinosaur could see us pouring orange juice this way from a plastic jug we made of her, well, this is what she'd say. It took me 80 million years to get so don't throw that mug, don't throw that jug, don't you throw me away. R-E-C-Y-C-L-E, that's the way it's supposed to be. We're just a link in the chain of history. R-E-C-Y-C-L-E, R-E-C-Y-C-L-E, that's the way that's supposed to be. Hey, I recycle. This melody, R-E-C-Y-C-L-E, use it again, R-E-C-Y-C-L-E, and again, R-E-C-Y-C-L-E. The master, Tom Chapin. <laughs> oh my God, that is so good. Thank you, Zach. Tom, Great fun Tom, talking to you. Thank you so much. That was that was an absolute blast. Thank you so much. I okay, so, so appreciative. Stay well out there. And thank I'll you, see you on too. the YouTube. Okay, <laughs> be well. <laughs> there you have it. Episode 31. Thanks for tuning in. This this episode really meant a lot to me. I mean, it was so cool talking with Tom. This is the first time we'd ever spoken, actually. We've, we've never met before. And I mean, the power of music, it's amazing that I can talk with him and listen to him play and I'm transported right back to being five years old and watching him play live on my TV and struggling along on my guitar to play along and listening to his music on airplanes and seeing him live in concert. I mean, just this meant a lot to me and I really appreciate you guys tuning in and checking it out. And I, I hope you guys got something from it. And by the way, the movie, the Harry Shapin movie that's out now, the documentary, you got to check this out. You can go to harryshapinmovie.com to learn more about it, figure out how to watch it. And it's, it's an incredible film. I think you're really going to love it. So please check out the Harry Shapin documentary. And thanks again to Tom for coming on the show and taking the time to help promote the movie. And I mean, it was, it was so much fun talking and I'm so glad we were able to make it happen. So thanks again, Tom. Thanks again for listening. I'm Zach Kuhn and we'll see you next week. Bye.